Certainly it's an issue that comes across our desk, employers asking for us to prepare internship agreements. And when we do that, one of the questions is, well, what's in the agreement? Does it involve you paying them? Uh, And if they say no, well, then yes, there's a conversation to be had around, all right, well, just be aware that you're going to carry some liability depending on what type of things they're doing for you. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 269 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Where does an unpaid intern stop and an underpaid employee start? Where is this fine line between interns and employees? And is the risk just too high to engage interns in the first place? These are just some of the questions James True of Legal Vision in Sydney will discuss with you in this episode. What you've raised is a really a really good point around what's quite a tricky area for a lot of employers and one which probably historically employers may have just, you know, continued to engage uh, interns and nothing had ever come from it. They may have had some legal liability in the background, but no one ever brought a claim because, you know, the interns often were just grateful for a job. But there's a bit of a change happening recently and increasingly we're seeing more and more coverage around employment rights and employees being aware of their rights and probably comes in the context too of a lot of employers now very publicly being found to have contravened the um, the industrial laws, particularly in relation to things like underpayments and sort of even with uh, uh, big corporates uh, are increasingly now uh, self-confessing to the Fair Work Ombudsman that they've identified what are often multi-million dollar underpayments. So everyone's becoming a little bit more aware of, uh, of these issues. I'm certainly getting a lot more time in the media. So... The question there, I suppose, is how do you how do you walk that fine line and figure out when someone goes from being a, a genuine intern who you're not required to pay to being an employee who will be entitled to a, a minimum wage? And the simplest way to put that is that it's a question of when they start to perform work. So an intern in, in the unpaid sense, a genuine intern, is really there to observe and, and learn rather than actually perform any work for the business. So in that sense, it's a relatively high threshold because most intern arrangements that you would see typically involve usually the, the intern getting their hands dirty and performing some work. So there is, there is quite often a risk that they will actually perform work and and therefore kind of push the boundary of potentially becoming a, an employee. In terms of how uh, a company could could break that down, a good question to ask is, well, what is the reason for the arrangement? Is it genuinely to give the individual experience in your business? Is it part of an educational or vocational course? And I'll, I'll come back to that in a, in a minute, the idea of a practical placement. Or is it actually about performing productive work for the employer? Another thing that employers can look at, which is less, uh, I guess, indicative, but it's the question of time. And usually the longer the arrangement runs for, the harder it's going to be that an employer is going to be able to say that, well, they're not actually performing any work and they've been observing all of this time. So the next sort of issue there is, right, is is there a safe zone? 
and are employers actually better off just paying everyone and, and de-risking everything? And the answer is yes, there is a safe zone. The Fair Work Act has an express exemption around really your obligation to pay wages um, when that internship is a student or vocational placement. So what that means is the the placement has to be done as a requirement of an education or training course. So that's to say it's actually got to be a component of the course, not just relevant to or related to that course. And the institution that the individual is coming from has to be an approved one. So you can't make up a a fake university and pretend they're doing a course from that. Universities, TAFE, colleges, schools, and then your registered training organisations are all going to be approved uh, providers of these courses. So you are safe where someone's doing, say, a unit of study at a university course, which requires them to do a practical placement. In those circumstances, you're pretty clear that they can come into your business and they can still perform some work for you if it's all part of the placement and they won't be considered an employee who's entitled to payment. But if you're sitting outside the bounds of that, then the safe zone is really only when they're truly just coming and observing, which is going to be very limited circumstances. Three questions for you, James. Mm. The first one is this learning by observing. We all learn by actually doing it. So it basically means that doesn't work. For the most part, yeah. As I said, it, it, it's a pretty high threshold. The times that that might be um, more likely to, to actually be the case would be in the case often of school students who come and do, I mean, again, that's part of a, voc- a school placement, so you're covered in that respect. But they will do much more of a genuine kind of work experience um, where they sort of watch what's going on. They might shadow someone, they might tag along just really to see what it's like. And uh, But, you know, very rarely would, you know, a business actually offer that arrangement because there's not much in it for them. But that was actually my second question. So if somebody is a student at an approved training or educational institution, is it exempt even if the student arranges this internship on their own volition or does it need to be part of the coursework? Yeah, that's right. And it's, it's the latter. It actually has to be a part of the course not just related uh, to it. Okay, so it actually must then be organised through the university or through TAFE. It can't be kind of a personal initiative during term break. That's right, yeah. Usually something, a good way to think of it is, you know, are they are they going to get credit points for it at their institution or is it, is it actually counting towards the degree they're doing or the, the certificate or, or whatever the, um, the study is? If it is counting towards that, generally you'll be okay. And if it doesn't, then you're usually at risk. That's right. Okay. Third question. You mentioned time, the length of the um, engagement. Mm. Is there a rule of thumb? Can you say as long as it doesn't go beyond three months, you're safe, or as long as it doesn't go over three weeks, you're safe? Is there a rough rule of thumb? Fortunately, no. There's um, it, it, Time is only really a, a very small factor in the consideration. The predominant question is that one of when are they performing work? So three weeks of actually performing work is going to run a much higher risk than, say, you know, three months of just observing. But I think 
I think generally what happens in practice is that shorter placements, you tend to aim as an employer, I suppose, to get less from that individual. And it's just because the time is shorter, you're less likely to um, find them performing work. But no, the, the time question is certainly not indicative or it's not determinative of the relationship. And I read something that with respect to time, the courts look at the proportion between training and work. So if it takes three months to train somebody to then actually do the work and then they just do the actual work for a couple of days or so then the focus is clearly on training and education but if it takes 30 seconds to show you and then you do three months of work then clearly the focus is on work and not on training is is that a fair observation that it's kind of also about the proportion of time spent training and the time spent working Is that in the context of, you know, actually training someone up to be able to then do the job? Yes. Look, yeah, it, I, I suppose it could be relevant. But again, that predominant question is around whether they're performing work during that training time. And certainly in an ordinary employment relationship where you do train your employees, uh, training is still, if it's training relevant to the job they're performing, is usually something you'll still have to pay that employee to attend or to undertake. So very rarely is even training for an employee actually able to be unpaid. Okay, so that basically means this whole concept of internship is basically killed unless it comes through an organization and the person receives credit for their coursework. But apart from that, it's basically dead in the water, correct? For the most part, yes. And I think it's just one of those things that there are a lot of employers out there who certainly are carrying on many unpaid internships. And historically, it just hasn't been a focus of the regulators to to go and you know prosecute those um, those companies that might be doing it, and it's also been one that probably historically you know where the individual who's been doing the uh, the internship is quite often just grateful to have a foot in the door, and if it turns into employment, then usually that internship period you know there might be some technical liability there, but that individual will will rarely go and claim for it. So it's probably a very misunderstood area in that sense, both on the part of employers and actually the individuals performing work who who mm. historically may not have actually realised that there was an obligation to make payment for wages there. I can very much imagine that there has also been abuse of this concept of internship, but mm. I can also imagine that quite a few employers just generally wanted to give somebody a foot in the door and said, yeah, come, you can join me for two months and then you have some work experience and it will be easier for you to find a proper job. And so they didn't really need this person. They just mm -hmm. wanted to give them a leg up, took them on, and then suddenly the relationship sours and they are faced with a big liability. So the, the lesson of the day is basically, even though it's tempting, even though you might want to help this person, you have to employ them. Otherwise, it's just too risky. Yeah, that's right. And if uh, if you're not comfortable with that risk, then absolutely, that's the, the right way to go about it. The question that just comes to my mind is, I think in a way it harms a little bit the people it's meant to protect, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it makes it a lot harder for for young people to enter the workforce. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair comment. And I think a lot of employers tend to feel that way in many respects around a lot of Australia's industrial laws. The obligations on employers can be seen as relatively onerous. And there's obviously a lot of 
conversation around minimum wage rates and penalty loadings, overtime allowances, all of those types of things. They are typically quite political issues and often kind of fought quite fiercely, I suppose, um, mm. on, on both sides of politics around uh, around where the, the power should lie in that relationship. And, yeah, certainly the, the, that if employers are going to shy away from you know, giving people that foot in the door, then yes, it, it will be the the individual who doesn't get the head start. You know, by the same token, the 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 flip side to that argument is that the you know they're not being asked to be paid what you know a more senior employee who is performing better work for you um, is. They're they're only required to be paid the absolute base minimum, and you know the the principle that says well if if you want to give someone that go you don't have to competitively remunerate them but you do have to pay when people do work for you and that that's probably the flip side i have two more questions for you james the first one is do you have quite a lot of businesses who come to you who had employed interns or has the word of mouth spread around and nobody really does internships anymore apart from when it comes through a university or a school or a tafe Yes, yeah, so certainly it's an issue that comes across our desk. Employers asking uh, for us to prepare internship agreements. And when we do that, one of the questions is, well, what's in the agreement? Does it involve you paying them? Uh, and if they say no, well, then yes, there's a conversation to be had around, all right, well, just be aware that you're, you know, going to carry some liability depending on what type of things they're doing for you. And what do most then say? Do most then say, oh, we better don't do it? Or do most then say, we, okay, so then we pay? Or do most say, yeah, we are happy to carry that risk? I think there's a real split. I think a, a, a good portion of our clients, even prior to us advising them that there's an obligation to pay, are already doing it and are already proposing to pay their interns. I think, I think increasingly businesses are, are getting that they want to or that they need to pay their interns and if not for compliance related issues but for competition based reasons that you know if you're trying to attract the best talent you know from universities then a paid internship is going to make you an absolute uh, employer of choice and that gives you an opportunity to you know to assess the cream of the crop and get them in your business um, and a better chance to keep them uh, maybe when they graduate but certainly there are other employers who are Uh, I'm more than happy to run the risk. So I, I think there's probably, whether yeah, whether it's 50-50, it's probably a bit hard to say, but it, it, there's certainly not a, a dominant trend that says employers are doing one or the other. I think probably if, if there is any trend within it, it's that the more, uh, the larger the business, the more likely they are to be paying their interns. And that might be for any number of reasons. Uh, a, they've got the funds to do it, or B, they've got an internal, you know, HR and accounting function that puts it on the radar for them and actually lets them know that it, that it is an issue if, if we haven't done so when we've been advising. My second question is, when you look at the possible types of engagements, I think there are basically four. There's employee and contractor, which is a long story in itself. <laughs> yes. Then there are interns and then there are volunteers. Can you just very quickly give me a feel for how volunteers are different from interns and also what 
the legal status is of volunteers? Yeah, volunteers is a tricky one. And again, a, a lot of gray area in volunteers. Still those same principles apply around the performance of work. But what can be different with volunteers is depending on the nature of the organization. And the courts have considered issues like, you know, is the organization have some kind of charitable or community-based social justice type purpose. And that can be something that you can reasonably volunteer your time. It has a bit more to do with whether the individual, you know, is is knowingly, I suppose, proposing their time for the organisation and where there's really no expectation on them to do it. So perhaps as distinct from an internship agreement where you might say, well, you're going to be here doing this intern internship and it runs from this date to this date and these are our business hours and we'll see you two days a week, for example. And there is some actual intention that they might turn up during that time. Volunteer arrangements are are far more ad hoc. I think in practice, they don't end up being that way. But the intention behind the the relationship is that really, well, there's no obligation for someone to be there. They they give their time when they can. Not the the volunteer is not necessarily a um, a sort of well considered and articulated relationship within the industrial framework. Yes, but the volunteer would usually be working for deductible gift recipient. You know, for a registered non-profit organization or charity. Yeah, and that and that might also be another way to distinguish it, that if there is some some benefit there, and that's the agreement, that's the extent of the agreement in terms of a, a quote-unquote remuneration. We haven't gone through the court cases, especially the one against AIMG for 300,000. Yeah, look, there, there is one against a fashion startup. The case is, it was the, the Fair Work Ombudsman prosecuted um, a company called um, Her Croc Fashion Media? Box. Ah, oh, Fashion um, Box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've been across that one. So it was basically a, a fashion industry startup and they'd underpaid three employees of their minimum entitlements and that, inc- and that was to the tune of about $40,000. But it included a graphic designer who was engaged on the basis of an unpaid internship Now, that intern, as they were called, had already completed university and was working with that employer for two days a week over a six-month period. The court basically said, look, that's not a legitimate um, internship, and this is actually an employment relationship, which means they're entitled to be paid. The interesting thing about this case is that the, the court went after both the employer and the director of the business. So, The director tried to argue that, well, I don't have any prior management in business. It's my first time having a go at business um, and it's just through lack of experience in managing and I didn't know about the industry and that's why we've landed in this position. So it's not deliberate, but it's just due to what they claimed was an oversight and lack of awareness and appropriate advice. But the court said, no, I don't accept that. These were deliberate and you knew you weren't paying the amounts that they were entitled to. So the court ordered that that shareholder, the main shareholder, the director, paid penalties of 54000 which was in their personal capacity. And then the company, the corporate entity, um, paid penalties of 274000 So 
you're looking at what was a a strict employment liability of about $40,000 over that period, but the employer has ended up with penalties. So they weren't just ordered, all right, well, the consequence is you have to make back payment of the 40000 There were penalties that came with it as well. So that's probably an important thing for employers to be aware of is that the liability that you're running or the, the risk is that you'll be liable not only to back pay the wages, but for penalties too, not only for the company, but also for individuals who are involved in the breach. So there can be personal penalties there as well. So if you're basically looking at $300,000 of penalties in total for $45,000 of unpaid wages. That's right, yeah. And it's interesting that the director also received a penalty because I can imagine that this $250,000 penalty to this startup company probably ended the startup company. I can imagine that would have used right. up all their seed capital. So that ended the startup and the company probably declared. If I think it was insolvent. wound up. That's right. Yeah, 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 it was wound up. And so then that 250000 probably was not paid because it was just part of the insolvency that's right um, asset but, pool. but the director but then, in their personal exactly. capacity that's right exactly but then the director's house or whatever assets he had then would have been on the line and fifty four thousand is still a painful amount absolutely i hadn't heard of that one i had heard of the um case against aimg where the penalties were almost three hundred thousand. aimg and i think i've got some notes on it here i might be able to pull up I just know that there were about 180 hours of unpaid work. Yeah, that was in relation to an event planner. And that's right, she performed, and it was, uh, yeah, AM, AIMG advertised for the position of an event planner internship. And then once the individual was successful, once she started, she did more than 180 hours of what was productive work. So she was organizing events, editing the magazine, did general office cleaning and reception duties, and then wasn't paid for the work she performed during that internship, but was actually later engaged as a, a permanent part-time employee. But once she was actually called a permanent part-time employee, she was still performing the very same duties that she um, performed during the internship. So the court basically said, well, look, the, the internship didn't have any affiliation with you know the, the tertiary studies that that individual was undertaking at the time. So didn't meet the requirements for the, the vocational placement exemption. Said that the underpayment was $2,200. So a, a relatively small underpayment, uh, but the penalty was 270000 on AIMG. That's massive. That is, yeah. And the uh, contract with the intern, where the intern says, yes, I'm more than happy to do this work unpaid, all that doesn't protect you in the slightest. Because I can imagine that in these two cases, the intern did agree to do the work unpaid mm, at the yes. start and then afterwards turned around and said, I, I want to be paid. So even if there's an agreement beforehand, it doesn't protect you. Yeah, that's right. And and look, and that's just, there's a basic principle that, that you can't contract out of the law. And so if uh, it doesn't matter what you agree, if the law says something different, uh, it's going to prevail. Sometimes that issue around agreement could only be potentially relevant to whether or not you get penalised. So, you know, it, it would be, in terms of the penalties you may receive, it could be distinct for a business that thought genuinely they thought they were entering into an unpaid and what was a genuine un, you know, unpaid internship and that was okay. The party on the other side perhaps had even proposed it and that 
um, you know, but subsequently they were found that it was actually employment, well, their penalty is potentially going to be less than an entity that maybe goes looking for unpaid interns to fill work that it know it needs it knows it needs performed, where there's more intentional um, behaviour, you'll typically find that you'll get a higher penalty. Um, but not not understanding the law, ignorance of the law is, is no excuse, and that won't stop the courts going hard on employers if they do breach the law. The lesson I take away is basically don't do it. Don't do internships. It's just too risky. Yeah, look, I, that's that's certainly a fair one. And I think, look, I think a lot of a lot of employers have their own risk pro- risk profile when it comes to how they approach the industrial laws. But certainly, increasingly, you know, being cavalier and and not expecting to get caught out when you do breach the industrial laws is in, is increasingly a a higher and higher risk all the time. Now that there is more and more awareness in the media and the community about um, compliance with the industrial laws. Welcome back. So unless it is a vocational placement, don't do unpaid internships. The risk is just too high. And unless it is a vocational placement, advise your clients not to do unpaid internships either for their sake as well as yours. Since accountants have been held liable for ignoring the fact that their clients were underpaying staff. In the next episode, episode 270, Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will talk about how to save land tax. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. The Australian Open. The uh, linesmen are paid at the Australian Open, but all the ball girls and ball boys, even though they probably work four or five hours a day are not paid given the way the law has changed would you see that as an issue hey, look it, it potentially could be i suppose yes the, the question there is whether they're actually performing work or whether you know they're being offered the experience of coming and doing that i suppose would be the way the australian open might look at it but certainly there's an argument to say well they need that work performed and it wouldn't be outrageous if someone brought a claim to say that they should be entitled to payment for that work, the way the law is uh, is set up. Yes, because they're not volunteers in terms of that they can just turn up or not turn up as they like. They are following a clear schedule. You are on this court at that time. Hence, yep. they wouldn't be a volunteer. They are not a contractor, so they're not an intern. So all that's, mm, that's, left, right. is, all that's left is an employee. That's right. And so if, if someone can argue that that amounts to, to work, which, as I said, I, I, there's probably a reasonable argument to say it does. Yeah. I think um, it's only a matter of time until a parent will raise this. Yeah.